In this episode, Jared Poff, Executive Vice President and CFO at Designer Brands, talks about jumping into the CFO role unexpectedly early, explains how he navigated turbulence in the retail sector through the pandemic, and outlines why he's optimistic as we look ahead to 2022. Hi, I'm Ross, and this is the CFO Playbook, where each week you'll get insights from world-class financial leaders to help you grow your company, yourself, and face the challenges required of today's CFO. Jared, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. Looking forward to it. So Jared, I'd, I'd love to go back a little bit to when you started in your most recent role, which which you can see is the, the first CFO role in your career, but it was many moons ago, so almost seven years ago. So I'm sure it's almost a distant memory. But can you talk a little bit about that journey that you had up until then and then that, that step change to becoming the CFO? Because often that is a significant leap for people to make and that first time CFO experience can be a really challenging one. So what was that like? I have been a corporate finance geek my whole life and really have, have gone towards areas where I found interest in capital markets and, and FP&A and, and things like that. I'm always with an aspiration of growing and eventually reaching this, the CFO role. I was very deliberate in, in the various stops that I made along, along the journey. And one thing, um, you know, I'm based here in Columbus, Ohio, which at the time had 13 retail or consumer companies headquartered here. And so it was a really unique area with lots of home offices and lots of, of really good opportunities to, to get that different career trajectory. And so for the most part, I, I stayed in the retail trade. I did, uh, upon getting my MBA while I was working at, at the Abercrombie and Fitch headquarters, um, and so I went to school in the evenings, got my MBA, parlayed that into a job with the largest company in Ohio, which was called Cardinal Health. So it took, took a little bit of a step away from retail, but still very much um, developmental from a corporate finance standpoint from capital markets, but then went back into retail took the current position as actually a CFO in grooming role. So when, when I joined at the time, we were just DSW. We were not designer brands. We had basically one, one banner. It was the DSW retail banner. Um, and we had a small side business called Affiliated Business Group, but it was really about DSW. They had created a position that was very attractive to me. Um, and it was about um, you know being groomed to be the next CFO in three to five years. DSW is very, still to this day very deliberate about succession planning and making sure that you know everyone is developing and, and there's there are backups for the positions. So there was a different CEO at the time and a different CFO who hired me, and I took the role as treasurer, head of FP&A, head of business development, as well as kind of CFO in waiting. And, and it was supposed to be about a three to five year uh, developmental opportunity. And, and then, you know, she was going to move on in probably three to five years. Well, fast forward about eight months into that trajectory, um, I had picked up the controllership because that was an area I was needing to get experience in. I was not a CPA um, and, and really had not spent much time in my career uh, path on the accounting side of the world. And so that was something as part of my developmental work in this new role I was, I was taking on. So I became the controller as well as the treasurer about eight months into that, there was a CEO change, um, an unexpected CEO change. And, and then shortly after that, the CFO decided to exit. And so all of a sudden, I'm immediately thrown into what was supposed to be a three to five year development opportunity. I'm thrown into the interim role. But because it was interim, I also had to retain being this, the treasurer 
and the controller, as well as the CFO. So it was a very, very grueling, highly intensive time for about six months while we did extensive interviewing of myself, as well as many, many other candidates, and ultimately was awarded the, the, the position permanently and, and have added to that since then with you know adding the legal area under my purview, the real estate area, the procurement area. But it's been a journey and been, been very rewarding. It's a fascinating tale because when you said three to five year succession planning, I was I was really impressed. I thought that's incredible that to have that foresight. But then you actually highlighted one of the reasons that many companies don't do that because stuff happens. Things happen in the market, especially in fast moving industries like retail. And so within less than two years, you are fast tracked into a position that you probably at that point didn't have all of the skill set that you were planning to build to be prepared for it. That's right. And, and, you know, I was also partnered with a, a first time CEO. So he was a longtime executive with DSW, but first time in that in that role. And so, you know, that that was one of the things the board wanted to be very comfortable with was not only were they putting in a CEO who had not sat in that role, but they were they were considering putting in a CFO who had never sat in a CFO role before, too. So, you know, there, there was a lot of, of apprehension, but also a, a whole lot of support and our, our structure at, at Designer Brands. We, we have a lot of, of autonomy, but also a lot of really good guidance from our founder, who is still the controlling chairman. And his office, his family office, they, they certainly work with us hand in hand and, and provide a lot of support as well. So it, it really worked out for both of us. And so at that point, actually, because of the first time nature of it, it I'm sure a lot of the your suitability came down to the, the relationship you had with that CEO. That's right. Yeah, it absolutely was. And he was instrumental in actually recruiting me to to come to DSW. I I had known him for over 20 years. Um, in fact, we both met each other by starting a band um, when we were both in one of the limiteds divisions. So back in 20 years prior, um, there was a group of, of six of us that all were in finance in one of the limited groups. I was at Abercrombie. He was at Express. Someone else was at Bath and Body Works. We started a band. We were all musicians. And we did that as a side thing. Well, well we all did our, our finance jobs. We all left a few years after joining the band to grow our careers in different areas. And he grew his by going into real estate and then coming back into, and I went, you know, in the path that I've talked about, he was recruiting me with the then current CFO very, very hard for a few years, um, trying to get me to come over. He was not CEO. He was at that time, the chief innovation officer. He had launched their dot-com business, but he really had a passion for design at the, at the time DSW, but for designer brands and the model that they had. And so he was instrumental in helping convince me to leave a company twice the size of DSW. Big Lots that I left was, was a $5 billion company. I was going to a $2.5 billion. It was because of, of him and a couple other leaders there that I had developed personal relationships with that convinced me to, to take the leap. And um, it, it's worked out very, very well. It's funny you mention that because it's a recurring theme that, that almost every CFO mentions, which is that the, the relationship with CEO is kind of sink or swim because it's so intense and the CEO relies so heavily on you as CFO and vice versa because you're advising them. That if it's effective, then in many cases, those relationships endure for your whole career and for decades at a time. And, and that, that partnership re returns. And it sounds as if that's absolutely the case here. That, that is. And, and, you know, I will tell you, I took a lot of uh, mentoring advice from a prior CFO, one that I had worked for at Big Lots. He, he had said he took the approach that when it comes to being the CFO and, and even the CFO's direct reports, but certainly the CFO and the CEO, it, it had to be more than just your, your eight to five working relationship. It had to be a relationship of trust. It had to be one that, that ultimately was closer than a lot of your personal friendships because 
do you do rely on each other uh, and, and interact with each other in such a deep way. And so, you know, I took that to heart. Uh, I was a little apprehensive to say, is this going to work out working for someone that I already know? But but it, it's worked out great. And I do think it's given us a level of trust that, you know, might have taken longer to build had we not had had that history before. When you first mentioned uh, first-time CEO, first-time CFO, it popped into my head what I'm sure was an unfunny joke about you being the Lennon and McCartney. And then when you mentioned the band, actually, it turns out that was more of a, uh, a foresight into, into the real relationship. It started with music and ended up in the business world. That's right. And I will tell you, to this day, we are still together, although, although uh, a few of the members have retired and moved on. And so, you know, they're actually not even in the same state. Um, we come in to get together a few times a year, and it is just a, a really good a release and a way to have a relationship that isn't about the business. And um, so then, like thinking, maybe just taking a slight step back from designer brands, but you're talking about, of course, Columbus, Ohio. I didn't actually know it was such a retail hub for for so many large companies, which is which is incredible. But of course, in this in the last ten to twenty years, there's been such a disruption of retail, largely by online players like Amazon and others. Has that affected Columbus in a particular way? Um, like being the heart, the, I guess, the homeland to traditional retail, whereas maybe the, the Bay Area and West Coast disruption has, has affected that? It, it, it absolutely has in, in very, very monumental ways. So still a, a huge hub for retail, for brand growth. But but the perch that you know some of those brands used to sit at has eroded. Uh, you've seen that dissolve. So as I mentioned, there were 13 different brands, all had separate headquarters, headquartered here. But they almost all came from two families. One was the Wexner family. Les Wexner himself started the Limited and then, you know, Victoria's Secret, then Bath and Body Works, then Limited, the kids that became Justice, um, Lerner, Lane Bryant, all of those. And then you had the Schottensteins and they had Value City. They had DSW. They have um, Schottenstein department stores. Um, he, American Eagle. Now, that's headquartered in Pittsburgh, but a lot of the office and, and the things that they do are, are in Columbus as well. So between those two families, they certainly had had decades of uh, leadership. And really, if you think of Wexner and all of the brands that, that he created, I mean, for, for decades, they were you walked into a into a mall and, and they had 20 percent, 25 percent of the square footage in any American in any American mall. Um, you have seen that completely change. Many of those brands are gone or, or are close to gone. Um, you've seen even his flagship brands just recently um, split out. And so, um, you know, Victoria's Secret is now a stand-up company by itself, separate from Bath & Body Works. Investors thought there was more value in, in, in separating those businesses. And, and Les himself has retired from, from active management. And so there's been a lot of disruption, obviously, in, in retail and branding like there has been everywhere. So then you combine that with the disruption that has gone on to society, to civilization in the past 18 months or so with the pandemic. So what's it been like to be a CFO? First, the retail industry being heavily disrupted. And then secondly, being in, in the middle of a pandemic where you actually it's changed the way we've interacted in a way that nobody alive probably remembers. Absolutely. I, I will tell you, I've never, ever even thought of the word essential until the pandemic. But when when your business is deemed non-essential um, and that means, therefore, you have to shut down and have to make decisions like furloughing 80 percent of your 15,000 employees across um, across the world, it changes everything. And it was the darkest, hardest time being an, uh, being a leader of a, of a business and having to tell people who who 
you know trusted you and and looked to you for their day-to-day salary and and livelihood to say, I don't know what this means, but we're going to do everything we can to be as smart to, to keep the health and safety of you and your family top and paramount and, and try to get through this. And we did. And, you know, we just posted yesterday all time record highs, all time of, of, of our entire history in uh, performance in gross margin and op income and in net income and in EPS. And that comes after all time record losses last year that we would have never thought we'd, we'd, we'd get through. And so it was the most um, challenging and probably most developmental time I, I've ever lived through and hope to never live through again, to be honest. Well, and it's and now in a way that you're you're out of the, the tunnel on the other side uh, and you with such impressive results, sometimes you can look back and you forget the pain. I think it's probably one of the good things about the human condition is we forget pain often quite quickly. Um, but then surely that time as you said, must have been so challenging because it's an existential threat to the business. And so then you mentioned in the other time that was immensely challenging when you first stepped up to CFO. Were there any parallels between those experiences or was there anything that you that you brought from the first experience into this more recent one in the pandemic? Yeah, you know, what, what I would say, the biggest parallel is really about being calm. Even if you don't have the answers, not displaying that you don't have the answers or at least that, that you feel panicked. When you're sitting... Uh, in a corporate finance job, and you are trying to learn how to be a CFO, and basically living an interview every day because I was I was interim, which meant every every single day they could say, well, you, we wouldn't have done that, so so you know we're not going to give you the, the full time job. So you're living an interview every day, and you're having to do without two of your key lieutenants that you normally would have, which is a treasurer and a controller, because you have to be all three of them in case you don't get that permanent position, you know, there was a lot of stress. And one of the things that CFOs have to be the presence of is a steady hand. You're typically that steady hand for the business. And so living through that personally during that that six month interim period was challenging, but but it, it gave you a sense of how to do that and and not show not show panic on your face while you while you have a lot to figure out. And the same thing when when we're going, again, it, it hit us totally out of the blue, you have to shut down. You've got to tell 15,000 people, you don't know if and when you'll, you'll be able to ever pay them again and, and bring them back to work. It, it was the same thing. You can't show panic and, and really uh, calm and, and presence, even, even in a lot of turmoil. And so most big decisions that would have been big decisions prior to that are pretty microscopic by comparison now. That's right. Many times I've talked to people and they're like, what's one of your biggest accomplishments? And I said, uh, up until 2020, I would have answered X. I said, now, you know, I, I answered, look, we, we were able to fund an operating loss of close to a half a billion dollars without diluting the shareholder equity at all. We, we raised capital by talking to lenders and we've never taken out a loan before. We, we raised capital by talking to lenders, even though we, we couldn't tell them if and when we'd ever be able to, to open up a store again. Um, when a customer would want to buy a shoe, a dress shoe from us again and, and be able to, to cobble all that together and, and protect the health and safety of our, our associates and then ultimately our customers. You know, it really was about leaning into the, the, the rigors that we had in place leading up to the pandemic. You know, we, we had a market share position um, in the categories we served that was at the top and, and knowing that at some point, people will need to be buying shoes again. We, we had flexibility in, uh, in our model to be able to adapt to changes in consumer preferences, be that how they shopped. We had already made the big investments to really, really grow an omni-channel infrastructure, 
or what they were buying. So traditionally, DSW had been known for and had, had market share leadership in dress shoes, especially women's dress shoes. But when they're not leaving the house, no one's needing dress shoes. We had a flexible business model and had had proven over, over many years we would follow the customer that there were lenders who said, we don't. We also don't know what, what this is going to look like, but we do know people will need shoes. And we know that you've got that, that position of trust. So we will we will lend to you. I will tell you, I never thought I'd be taking out a loan at 9.75% interest at, at our credit rating, but that's what the market was at the time. And I understand it. And it made sense. Uh, we are well beyond that now and very happy about that. It was It was definitely challenging. And I will tell you, the first couple attempts of what we wanted to raise didn't work because of that exact uh, anxiety. The lenders didn't know what was happening. The banks didn't know what was happening. And so we thought we would go down one path. That didn't work. We tried another path. That didn't work. Um, and, and we ultimately ended up with a private term loan um, with a really great partner. But um, it, was, it was not an easy effort. Were there any parallels with the financial crisis? There were, I remember there was a period late 2008, maybe early 2009, where people just didn't know where the world is going to go. And at some point, people thought the whole economic system could crash. And if you were trying to raise funds at that point, it, it was a difficult place to be. Can you think back to that time? Of course, you were in a different role, but can you recognize any parallels in how to deal with the uncertainty? Yeah, I, I, I can give you two examples, one of which is financial oriented. So certainly for, for the CFOs listening, the cliche is always cash is king. In a crisis, cash is the only thing, period, full stop. And it is preserving cash. I never had have worked for a, a workout situation. So a company where you come in and you've got to turn it around, they're in bankruptcy or they're coming out of bankruptcy. I, I've been fortunate or never made the choice to, to, to do that. And so therefore, I had never really had to lead an organization where you were looking at actual check-by-check check disbursements to say, we are sending out these checks this week. Um, we're not sending out these checks, even though that they're due. And, and we're going to preserve cash until we have visibility into what the future looks like, into when we can start generating revenues again. And that, that was the same back in the, in the banking crisis. I was at, at Big Lots at the time, not, not at DSW, but I remember our bank, our lead bank, and, and we were an investment grade credit and we didn't have debt at, at Big Loss, but we had a huge revolving credit facility. And I remember our, our lead bank calling, asking me a couple times a day how big of wire payments I thought I would be sending out that day. And I was the treasurer at the time. And I thought it was so odd. Like, why is this massive bank calling me? Well, it's because everyone was making runs of cash. They were drawing down their credit lines and they needed to know were they going to run out of cash basically as a bank? And what, what, what were my intentions? And so I understood that, especially during 2020, when I'm the one hoarding cash now, I went and drew down 100% of our credit lines and, and I'm holding every bit of cash that I can because again, that's the one thing that has stability that you know, you know will be there if you need it. So that, that's a huge parallel. The second parallel I would say is on the business reaction side. I was not at DSW, as I mentioned, but I understand that during that time, our chairman, uh, Jay Schottenstein, the founder, was basically insistent that when the, when the market is, is in turmoil and you feel you've got a position of strength, you go after market share and you double down on marketing and you double down on customer facing interactions. Um, and that's what he did. That's what he had DSW do in, in 2008. And it it worked great for them. I mean, you look at at, at their at their 2000 uh, end of 2008 into 2009 and 10, really really strong growth years for them. That was the same approach he wanted us to take 
even during this time frame. Now, obviously, we had some restrictions because we didn't have stores to send customers to, but they still were shopping digitally. He wanted the customers to know we were still there to meet their footwear needs, whatever they were. We would end up moving much, much heavier, much quicker to athletic and slippers and things that they can wear in the house. But still establishing that footwear authority louder than anyone else while many people are retrenching. And so from a business practice, I, I think that was a good parallel that worked out well as well. Then when you're thinking about that, those moves and that, that period, it's a natural transition to think about how you led your team because there's this huge uncertainty. And you and you, as you said, you want to project CAM and that, that CAM exists for the whole company and obviously the market, but all, presumably also your team as well. So how did you try and guide the finance team through that? Because when the finance team are so critical, but often so exposed to the harsh reality. So there's, you can't hide behind a facade because they know the numbers. That's right. No, you're, you're exactly right. Um, the number one word, and I know it's cliche, but I will say it, is communication. We always try to improve communication, if, and I'm sure at any organization, that's always one area where everyone rates it as an opportunity. But you know, the minute we decided we were sending everyone home, we stood up daily CFO meetings. I, I had a meeting with, we have three segments of designer brands. Each one has their own CFO. I'm, I'm the CFO of the holding company. I stood up a daily meeting of the operating CFOs. And then I also stood a daily meeting of my direct reports that never existed before. I mean, we, we would have weekly meetings or, or quarterly, depending on, on what the topic was, but it was just to talk about what were we fighting that day? Were we going to market? I, I had to turn to a and create um, a daily cash flow forecast that actually guided decisions by day. Normally, cash flow forecasts are more nice to have. You see them, you're like, okay, this is where we should end up. No, this is where we made decisions on which checks to pass, which wires to approve based on what we thought was coming in. And then we also had to rerun our long range plans, which how do you do a long range plan when you have no idea when you can reopen stores, but you had to have huge assumptions and be very clear what those assumptions were. We had to rerun those probably no less than once every three weeks because things were changing so fast and we were trying to raise life-saving capital. And obviously that's the first thing that any lender wants to look at is what do you think you're gonna look like 12 months from now, 24 months, 36 months. And so, you know, really staying more closely connected to to everyone that's involved in all of that and and portraying calm, letting them know, okay, this this didn't work, um, this first pursuit of, of financing, but we're going down another path and, and we've still got time. We've still got this amount of cash in the bank. Remember, cash is king. Um, we drew down on our credit lines. We're holding that cash. We can get through this, um, but definitely they are exposed to the realities of the numbers and no one outside of finance had an idea of what a half a billion dollar loss looked like. It was very interesting. And then you you mentioned about just monitoring almost check by check and the money that's going out. But then when you're talking on the scale of half a billion, if you're looking at the checks, the checks probably don't even make a difference in the, on that scale. So what role then does spending control and cost control have in that context? It, it really is all about prioritization. You realize there are things that, again, because I've never been in a workout situation, I've never been one that did not honor the obligations of the of the PO of if you, if you say you you have a lease payment due on this day that's when it gets paid and no one had to question whether DSW or Big Lots or Abercrombie was going to make their rent payments no one had to question if they were going to pay for that inventory that's sitting on their shelves and and I had to set up a, a meeting myself with all of our landlords 500 some people across North America to say I know I've got money due to you. I'm not paying you until I can reopen my stores. I'm not paying you. You can take me to court. You can do what you need to. 
I will pay you and we will work out a, a, a payment plan once I have visibility that will make you whole and, and we'll reach a negotiation. And they were all very supportive. I have to say that there was really very little consternation from that creditors group, the landlord community, to that approach. But those were the types of things. And that is, to answer your question, that's where it comes down to. It's all about prioritization. And if you know you need that inventory to, to even if it's digital only, to, to be able to generate some kind of revenue then that's someone who's going to get a payment because that that is absolutely critical and they could find someone else who will pay them for it in cash and not have to take take that credit risk especially when they're looking at your credit profile and saying you're not the DSW customer that existed just 6 months ago um you're very very risky and and I I need cash so it was all about prioritization and did that then mean that you had to shift what your team was focused on? Because I'd imagine you'd have many people on your team looking at, you know, many years out, maybe an acquisitive sense, the corporate development, FP&A. So, but actually at that point, it's like, you, let's not look one year out or even six months out. Let's look almost day by day, month by month, or maybe even week by week. Um, and so you had to refocus the energy on the team on the here and now, because you didn't know what was going to happen six months from now. That, that, that's exactly right. And, you know, as an example of that, our treasurer, she's also our head of tax, being the treasurer when when you're a really, really credit worthy, very stable company is, is a whole lot different than when no one, everyone is concerned that you're going to be able to pay your bills. And so she spent uh, an enormous amount of time talking to individual vendors, you know, whether it would be Nike, whether it would be Steve Madden, whether, whoever it is that we're buying product from, or even services, IBM, Oracle, relaying, here's what we're doing to get cash. Here's how we are, you know, managing through this. Here's, here's and negotiating. I mean, every single one was a negotiation and, and literally had to stand up a practice of doing that when historically it was much more one-sided. These are our terms. If you want us to buy your product, this is what we're going to pay. And it, it, it really... It really flipped around. You know, I, I would also chime in on something you, you mentioned, and, and, and it's, it's the change of the work that the teams are doing at every single level, because not only did they physically change, okay, you're working at home, um, which is entirely different. How, how do you do that when, you know, your kids are also at home because the schools aren't operating and, and, and your spouse is at home and you're, you've only got one office or no office and, and, and how's that work? But also the poaching. Columbus, as, as, as I mentioned, Columbus specifically has has a lot of retail, but we're also the state government. And, and we've got a whole bunch of banking and insurance headquartered here, nationwide insurance and, and, and a few big banks. And so the poachability of employees who have portable skills, like a lot of finance professionals, they can they can work in multiple industries. The poachability dramatically increased. And to say, do I want to stick around? with a company that that doesn't know what tomorrow looks like when I can I'm, I'm going to be just sitting from my office anyway in, in my home and I can take that to a stable company like Nationwide Insurance or the state of Ohio that isn't shuttering people and, and does not have to do furloughs. Um, it, it really became a whole different game and, and, and a fight for talent that we never had the battle for before. So then when you're thinking about that in that context, it's uh, motivating and, and, and keeping that staff and your team engaged is is a huge challenge. It is, and, and and calm, making sure that they that they believe that this this is solvable. We are going to get through it, and when we do, we're going to be stronger. I credit our entire executive leadership team and our communications team, who you know we also had to stand up a communications infrastructure of being able to talk to people that are sitting in their homes. 
That was not something we had on the books. We did not have a tool to allow us to do that to our 15,000 associates across North America. We did not have uh, an easy way to to know, you know, who was plugged in and who wasn't. And so there was there was some very quick learning we had to do, but that communication was key into, into keeping that talent calm and, and feeling like they should stick around. And you mentioned that tool that you had to stand up for, for communication with all of the staff. But one of the themes that, again, is recurring that comes up is the, the digitization of finance and, and, and of payments and, and everything connected around that. So the, the, the idea that automation and sales and marketing has been there for decades, it's, and, and engineering, of course, is there too. But GNA, there's a whole raft of new technologies that are emerging and helping to digitize that. And, and I wonder whether in that change of working as you went to a hybrid or remote workforce, did that force you to embrace new tools within finance as well as across the company? Yeah, you know, I, I would say in some regards, yes. We, we had already started down that path because with our acquisitions in 2018, we had become, we became global. And so all of a sudden our controller's office, as an example, is, is a shared function, shared service. He now had employees in China in Florida, in New York, in Toronto. Um, And so we had already been really tearing down a lot of the manual barriers around um, shared services and and how to be borderless and, and, and things like that. What we weren't prepared for yet was really just an efficient single communication tool. It still was all very much pass it down the tree. Okay, I'm gonna relay something to you. You now go to your your assistant controllers that are in five different locations and and relay that same message. And just like the old game, when you're a kid, that message gets distorted when it's passed one time to another time to another. And so our communications team has, has stood up. We, we happen to use Microsoft teams um, even on mobile, but has stood up a single platform that does allow us to instantaneously send the same message to whatever groups we want. And, and so that, you know, it's, it's a tighter message. It's much more quickly distributed and, and digested by, by everyone. And then, so we've we've spent a lot of time looking backwards, and, and of course, we're as you mentioned, you've just had this incredible last period of, of performance. We're not out of the woods yet, you know, but things are things are very promising. Do you have any um, predictions or any particular areas of of focus as we move into twenty twenty two? Yeah, you know, I, I think as far as um, retail and certainly footwear retail, we're going to continue to see some some pressures on the supply chain. And I think those companies that have the scale and the relationship with with their vendor partners, like we do at Designer Brands, as well as the ability to self self-control a lot of their own destiny. And through our Komodo acquisition, that's why we bought Komodo was because they were the leaders of designing and making the footwear in the categories we were dominant in on the retail side. That gives you a whole lot of, of flexibility that you know many of your peers don't have because I do think it's going to remain a, a pretty constrained supply chain environment into the future, certainly into the beginning and probably first half or more of, of 2022. I, I, I really think the most important thing is going to be are you able to pivot and adapt to what the customer is demanding and how they're wanting to interact with you? Companies, uh, and again, I'm, I'll focus on retail, but companies that are focused on one category are, are going to struggle as they did in, in, in 2020 if there's a shift in consumer demand that is outside of their category. We saw that at, at DSW in a temporary sense, I mean, when we got hit with the pandemic, we were still sitting on a whole lot of dress shoes. We had to liquidate those, but you can bet what we didn't go by was a whole lot of more dress shoes. We went and all of a sudden went into athletic and started growing our muscle and our market share in athleisure and in kids and, and things where we we had not historically been heavy in, but we saw the consumer going there because our model allowed us to do that. 
if we were someone who only sold men's suits, if we were someone who only sold, you know, only one style of shoe, that, that may be a different game. So I think you really need to be able to, to react and be nimble to succeed in 2022 and, and beyond. And, and you mentioned the supply chain, and of course, it's affected you in a very acute way with your particular industry. What will it take to unpick these, these stories of supply chain challenges that are seemingly worldwide, seemingly industry-wide? I think part of it is already happening. I think the massive cost increases and, and therefore the profit that a lot of these supply chain players are able to start extracting are putting more um, supply into that into that field. Um, and so, you know, that that's going to help. I really think more of it is going to be the the ability of, of companies to start feeling comfortable making big bets. Right now, including ourselves, we have we have stayed very, very cautious on on inventory, on you know production. That means overall everyone has has shrunk the infrastructure or the infrastructure is displaced in such a way that it's costing a whole lot more to get access to the little bit of supply that's out there. Um, as people start getting comfortable making those bigger bets and those bigger investments, um, you will see that supply start to, to come in to, to grab what is right now an outsized profit uh, in those in those areas. We are we are doing that. We, we mentioned on our call yesterday, we think probably the best in our industry. We increased our inventory position from the start of, of, of our third quarter. We were down almost 20 percent. We were down 18 percent to 2019. We ended the third quarter flat to 2019. And what that means is we've decided business looks stable enough now that we've made the investment in that inventory to fuel growth over 2019 for Q4 and into 22. We've looked at that supply chain. We know that there are places that we're going to see drop out because people are fighting for limited supply. So we've we've allowed our our buyers and our planners to overorder more than I would ever be comfortable with letting them do because we know there's going to be cuts, but that still will let us get the core of what we want to do. Um, and as more and more people start doing that, I, I think it's just going to naturally build more supply into that. So that's clearly a sign of confidence based on that level of investment that you and and the team are seeing going into 2022. Yeah, no, we we, we feel really really bullish. Um, you know, we gave guidance uh, first time. Um, since the pandemic that we gave uh, detailed uh, EPS guidance um, and, and you know, we we are we are in revenue guidance and we are planning um, up to 2019 um, for Q4. And, and obviously we haven't given 22 guidance. But if you, you assume that that trajectory maintains, you know, we, we think we've recovered and, and we are back into growth from pre-pandemic levels. Uh, Jared, as we draw the the interview to close, I, I often like to ask guests about the the advice that they would give to others, um, perhaps not your your peers who are already CFOs, but those who are aspiring CFOs. What, what advice would you give so that they could be prepared for that that when the occasion arises for them to step up to the position? Yeah, you know, I I always uh, point to two things that have served me well, and and even when I'm developing people on my teams, I I really highlight these two areas. It's ownership and intentness. I'm part of a charity, uh, a philanthropic organization that helps mentor high school students. And we focus on Coach John Wooden's Pyramid of Success. And it's got different building blocks. Each contribute to developing a good roadmap for success in life. But one is intentness, which I, I find so important. And that is approach your own career development, approach your own personal development with intent. You know, it's not just take what comes your way, be intentional about it. Every single time 
I left a job. I was leaving for a very specific reason, usually with a good relationship with, with the boss I was leaving to say, this makes sense for what you're trying to do. I get it. We don't have that opportunity here. And, and this makes makes perfect sense. But it doesn't come to you. Usually it doesn't come to you in a in a platter. You've got you've got to be very intentional about what you're doing. Don't let happen chance be what guides you. Um, and then secondly, is, is taking a sense of ownership no matter what level you're at and whatever you are doing. If, if in, in, in my career, if, if I was being the sales audit manager, which is what I did at Abercrombie, you know, I owned every aspect of that and, and tried to, you know, curious, why, why do we do it this way? What, what doesn't happen? It's as if it's your own house and your own dollars and all the way up to when you're the CFO and you really do own it. And, you know, it, you, you get fired if, if things don't go the right way. You, you need to have that sense of ownership. But I think when you put those two together, you'll you'll find a lot of good opportunities open up for you. I think that's great advice, Jared. Uh, and and with that, actually, it, there's been some incredible stories to, to hear the way you've navigated the, the first move into CFO world, even though it arrived a little bit early. And then more recently, navigating the pandemic, which is unprecedented. It's, it's been great to hear those throughout the podcast. So, so thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It's been, it's been wonderful. One last thing. If you have a question you'd love to ask a guest, visit cfoplaybook.fm and submit your question there. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting and then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com.